world's becoming a dangerous place for us women. Lipstick Bodyguard looks just like an innocent little lipstick, but it'll instantly drop any attacker to his knees so you can get away unharmed. Lipstick Bodyguard, fear no evil. Get yours today, only at LipstickBodyguard.com. On this episode of Parents Are Hard to Raise, could recent scientific breakthroughs in age reversal and human tissue regeneration be a pathway to biological immortality? Diane's special guest, Ira Pastor, CEO of BioQuark, gives us a peek behind the curtain at some incredible possibilities. to raise, helping families grow older together without losing their minds. I'm elder care expert Diane Berardi. We have a very special guest with us today, Ira Pastor. He's the CEO of the biomedical research company BioQuark Incorporated. And Ira, one of one aspect of research that your company is doing is extremely intriguing, extremely important to um, myself and the children of aging parents, and that that is um, the research to stop the body from developing Alzheimer's. Could you tell us about that? Absolutely. Um, you know, we uh, have been focused uh, on the central nervous system as a uh, target for for several years now, um, and a lot of this, of course, goes back to the uh, early work that we uh, do in terms of studying all of the wonderful species that sort of co-inhabit this planet with us, whose nervous systems can be, for lack of a better word, destroyed, and they regenerate and repair themselves and come back with full structure and function. Uh, and we, you know, have been spending the last several years really figuring out what makes them, you know, organisms like amphibians, salamanders, newts, and so forth, so good at sort of surviving and coming back from uh, damage to the central nervous system, whether it's the spinal cord or the, the higher brain um, perfectly every time it happens throughout a lifetime. So we have been looking at the problem of Alzheimer's and Alzheimer's dementia and, and sort of the continuum, whereas, you know, you think of the sort of current pharmaceutical industry as creating uh, drugs that only interfere at sort of the very late stages of yeah. the pathology. But we're very interested in sort of the whole continuum. So uh, in later stage patients, of course, how we regenerate and morphologically remodel the brain from the areas that are destroyed to this disease. But also, as we're now learning much more that, you know, Alzheimer's doesn't start late in life. It starts much earlier. Uh, there's a major inflammatory component to this disease. There's a major metabolic component to this disease. Now, many people classifying it as sort of a third form of diabetes. So we are not only interested in the regeneration side, but of course, all of the early changes that occur earlier in life from a genetic, epigenetic perspective huh, okay. that, you know, start moving things in the wrong direction and start these sort of pathological processes on their way. So you know, we are very excited at looking at Alzheimer's and other central nervous system disorders from a sort of much wider perspective 
than sort of the traditional drugs that the pharma industry creates uh, that are only sort of able to sort of minorly impede uh, the real downhill uh, processes that occur later on in the disease. Right. You're from the pharmaceutical industry. Do you think the industry is suppressing cures or, or you know, they're pulling out of research, you know, um, like Pfizer recently did, pulling out of Alzheimer's research? Um, you know, it's I guess it's been like 15 years since a new drug was launched. Um, what What is your take on that? I, I my, my take on it is, yeah, I mean, I, I do come out of the pharmaceutical industry. I sort of know, I know quite a bit. I spent, you know, around 30 years there. And, yeah, I mean, uh, from the perspective of suppressing cures or anything like that, it, it's not that sinister. It's basically, you know, an industry that has been operating on a certain model, and that model is, you know, let's create these small molecules that interfere with symptoms of our diseases as opposed to the underlying pathology. Okay. Uh, and when you do that, you create great treatments for stuff that lowering cholesterol and blood pressure and increasing hormone levels and things like that. But you're going to have no effect on ultimately curing anything because cure involves a, a rewriting of the pathological disease state. And that's just a turning back of cellular time and starting over. And that's just not what they do. Right. I, I make an analogy. It's sort of like asking, you know, a car company to, uh, you know, make airplanes instead of automobiles. It's not what they're good at. But, yeah, I mean, when you look at something, and you just mentioned Pfizer, I mean, it's a wonderful example. And here you have the fourth largest drug company in the world, $60-plus billion in sales. And a month ago, they just announced to the world, you know, we're getting out of Alzheimer's right. disease because, in essence, it's too hard. <laughs> it's earth-shaking because it's not like they're getting out of antibiotic research or something. You know, we got a lot of good antibiotics yeah. or for blood pressure-lowering drugs, which we've gotten pretty good at. I mean, here's something which arguably, um, although people will point out, well, hard to do some cancer, kill more people, but the sheer impact of, of what's coming our way in the next 20, 10 to 20 years, not in terms of mortality, but just in terms of the tremendous cost of taking care of the yeah. sort of this tsunami of Alzheimer's and dementia that's coming, and, and you scratch your head, my goodness, if Pfizer's getting out of it, well, should I run away? Well, no. Uh, it means we need to work twice as hard because we're probably on the right path and they're not. Yeah. So that's what <laughs> You know, and that's what is kind of, you know, alarming because you think if Pfizer is getting out, are others going to follow? And and there's so many of our audience, children of aging parents, and this is what they're dealing with. It's such a uh, a burden on on these families. So what do you think? Do you think these other companies will follow suit or somebody will just, <laughs> I don't know, stand their ground? I, I hope not. Unfortunately, the way things typically um, work in this space is, you know, uh, most people take their cues, like most people, um, you know, Wall Street uh, takes their cues. If, if they see Big Pharma doing something and they get excited, they invest in it. If they see Big Pharma not doing something, uh. they stop funding it. And that, unfortunately, you know, for small companies like us, is not always good because what Wall Street does trickles down to you know large private equity investors, which then trickles down to the venture capitalists, which trickles down to the seed investors. And if everyone doesn't see everyone else investing in stuff, it doesn't get funded. Uh, and so, hopefully, you know. Who else is out there? You know, you got Roche, Novartis, and Glaxo, and J&J, &J and other big players that are still around. 
uh, hopefully they're not going to follow uh, uh, Pfizer, and hopefully the lending effect <laughs> is not is not evident in this particular case because we, like say we, we as a society uh, require research in Alzheimer's and, and Alzheimer's dementia. It is an imperative. Yeah. What else is your um, uh, is your company working on? Well, one of our other pillars is cancer. And I know it sounds kind of odd that a regenerative medicine company is working on cancer because sometimes they're sort of thought of as parts of the double-edged sword. But the most fascinating part of sort of uh, discovery that we've run into, and actually, you know, this isn't solely our research. A lot of it goes back, interestingly, to the 1940s when we first started actually even testing carcinogens. But one of the lesser-known facts about sort of the regenerative species um, is that they're extremely cancer-resilient. Uh, it's not that they don't get cancer. Everything on this planet, from humans, dogs, snakes, frogs, fish, trees, everything gets cancer at some point. But how the lower organisms on Earth deal with cancer is very different than how we do. Uh, while we, you know, chop away and poison away with surgery and radiation and chemo and now even with the smart drugs, um, yet we still lose 8 million people a year to cancer around the world. How a lot of the members of the sort of the lower animal kingdom deal with is much different. They don't focus on killing cancer like we do. They focus on changing it. They focus on turning tumors back into what they used to be, which was normal, healthy tissue. And what we're only now learning is how intricately related regenerative processes are to this dynamic. So in essence, the way that newt turns back time in the tail and the spinal cord to grow it again is what it's doing when it gets cancer. And basically looking at that tumor and, in essence, saying, we don't need this here. Let's turn it back into something normal, a normal breast tissue, normal colon tissue, a normal lung tissue. Wow. And so this has very, been a very exciting area for us to focus on because um, whether we're talking about war on cancer 1 or now the new war on cancer 2, uh, it's all about killing. And just like, you know, you wouldn't chop out part of your brain if you found out you had Alzheimer's tomorrow, um, the kill-centric approaches to cancer still make sense. Or should we be looking at change events in terms of uh, carcinogenicity? And, and that is what we've been focused on. It's very exciting looking at things like melanoma uh, and breast cancer models. So that's been another very exciting area for us uh, as we've been developing this, this strategy. Wow, that is really inter- you know that is really interesting. Um, tell us. Yeah, about- yes, go uh, ahead. You know, I just wanted to make a point. I sit here in Philadelphia, and you know, the one other very interesting thing, and it, you know, just happened down the street uh, from me here uh, back in the 1970s, was when we also learned about the incredible ability of embryos, mammalian embryos, to also resist cancer transformation. Um, and you know, you can give a an, a an embryo tons of cancer cells, but when the baby is born at the end of the day, it's cancer free. And so this is just another sort of interesting analogy and connection back to sort of this ability, once again, to turn back time, start over, and clean up the cell. Uh, and this is a sort of very sort of underlying theme in all that we're doing. Sorry to interrupt you. No, no, that's it, – it's amazing. You know, I'm like – I'm sitting here like, oh, my gosh. You know, this is really um, fascinating to us uh, to learn about all your work. How did you decide to um, – I guess ex- exit the pharmaceutical and, and embark on this path. 
basically, you know, I was there for around 30 years. Um, it was a very interesting place to be. It was exciting. I, I still have friends that love doing what they do. But, you know, I, I got my start as a, um, you know, in, in a family business here in the Philadelphia area, community pharmacy business. Uh, I was always around sort of medicine, drugs, sort of small business. And I had an entrepreneurial spirit. Yeah. And at the end of the day, I was not happy uh, selling, you know, the the tenth statin or the you know the fourteenth uh, uh, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory agent. Um, I wanted to get back to something sort of more entrepreneurial, more creative. And at the same time, I had a big problem. You know, I was, you know, around elderly pa- parents, elderly grandparents, my whole life. I saw them taken from me, prostate cancer, congestive heart failure, chronic lung disease, and so forth. And I had a big problem hanging out in an industry that generated a trillion dollars a year uh, and was unable to cure (laughs) my parents and my grandparents of anything. Uh, And that's just, you know, at a point, you know, that becomes a little too much. And I wanted to do something different and, and do it the right way this time. Well, you certainly are. Um, you really have that passion, and you're going to be helping so many people. I could, I could feel it. <laughs> That's what drives us. I, I mean, I could hear it. Your drive, your, you know, your energy, your passion about it, and that's that's wonderful because. We need help. We do. You know. I mean, we all have uh, elderly parents, and and uh, you know. Um, it's sad, you know, people say to me, oh my God, you know, it's, uh, it's not my mom, you know, it's not my dad. I mean, as far as dementia, for instance, and uh, it's exciting that we have you and we have your company in, in this research. And when we come back from the break, we'll continue with Ira Pastor, the CEO of BioQuark Inc., I want to tell you about my friend Katie. Katie is a nurse and she was attacked on her way home from work. She was totally taken by surprise. And although Katie is only five feet tall and 106 pounds, she was easily able to drop her six foot four, 250 pound attacker to his knees and get away unharmed. Katie wasn't just lucky that day. She was prepared. In her pocketbook, a harmless looking lipstick, which really contained a powerful man-stopping aerosol propellant. It's not like it was in our grandmother's day. Today, just going to and from work or to the mall can have tragic consequences. The FBI says a violent crime is committed every 15 seconds in the United States, and a forcible rape happens every five minutes. And chances are, when something happens, no one will be around to help. It looks just like a lipstick, so no one will suspect a thing, which is important since experts say getting the jump on your attacker is all about the element of surprise. Inside this innocent-looking lipstick is the same powerful stuff used by police and the military to disarm even the most powerful armed aggressor. In fact, National Park Rangers use the very same formula that's inside this little lipstick to stop 2,000-pound vicious grizzly bears dead in their tracks. It's like carrying a personal bodyguard with you in your purse or your pocket. Darkness brings danger. Muggers and rapists use darkness to their advantage. We all know what it's like to be walking at night and hear footsteps coming at us from behind. Who's there? If it's somebody bad, will you be protected? Your life may depend on it. 
My friend Katie's close call needs to be a wake-up call for all of us, myself included. Pick up a lipstick bodyguard and keep it with you always. Were you ever young? You're listening to Parents Are Hard to Raise. Now, thanks to you, the number one elder care talk show on planet Earth. And we're back again with Ira Pastor, the CEO of the biomedical research company, BioQuark. And Ira, if people... um, I know they're interested interested in what you're doing and what your company's doing. How can they reach you? How can they contact you? Um, yeah, they can, they can just reach out to the website, Um You can learn about our programs, our relationships. Uh, make contact through the website. Uh, contact me directly if you want to. Uh, we're, as I said, we're a, a small, flexible company, and we're, we're an open book, and we want to, to tell everyone, about what we're doing. So we're happy to talk to everyone and anyone about this. Great. Now, this is also something very interesting to me. Uh, Tell us about your age reversal work. Um, Am I correct in saying, in essence, turning the clock back on human aging? Yeah, I mean, this is a um, an underlying component of what we basically have been developing the last several years is you know, whether we're talking about um, the regenerating organisms or whether we're talking about the ones that can revert cancer or even some of the oddball organisms around this planet that either don't age uh, or age in reverse, uh, like the immortal jellyfish, or a couple that even die and come back to life, what they all have in common is this amazing ability to, in essence, turn back cellular time and start over. Uh, now, we only possess this in one place uh, as humans, and that is the moment when we are first created. Um, when egg and sperm first come together, there is an amazing reset of time, uh, a reset of age, an erasure of history, an erasure of, that's, you know, this is why our children are all born age zero. Uh, they come out with two arms, two legs, ten fingers and toes, and so forth, and why we do not have children born with the traditional chronic diseases of old age. You will never have a baby born with Alzheimer's disease, as an example. Right, okay. So what we are studying along these processes while we work on regeneration repair is ultimately that dynamic of turning back time. We are not a, an anti-aging company per se, but aging, interestingly enough, will be a side effect of what we do because in creating that new pancreas, that new spinal cord, that new segment of your brain and so forth, we are, in essence, inadvertently making it younger. And so uh, there are some fascinating dynamics in uh, nature in terms of how this occurs. We know the proxies in humans, and it's just a matter of relinking it up, how we can study what happens in organisms, both non-human and human, uh, and recreate, recapitulate these events of biologic products that can, in essence, push the dial back a little bit and, in essence, start time over. Um, the amphibians are great at it, the jellyfish are great at it, the starfish, planarian worms, and so forth. We need to reconnect to this ability. And uh, evolution, nature has shown us a way. It's been doing this for three plus billion years. Uh, we need to relearn from it and 
uh, made it work for you. There are so many uh, patients, uh, you know, dying of incurable diseases, and what? Why is it so hard for them to get into um, the compassionate use program, you know, having access to experimental treatments? I mean, nothing is working. They can't get into clinical trials. Why is it so hard, and um, what are some solutions to this? Yeah, I mean, this is, this is a very big problem because, you know, as I mentioned, you have a trillion-dollar pharmaceutical industry. You have a $7 trillion healthcare industry, yet every year around the world, millions of people become so-called no option. Uh, and when we say no option, we're not just talking about sort of end-stage, you know, a terminal cancer patient or somebody with uh, kidney failure. Uh, we're talking about, you know, the rheumatoid arthritis patient that uh, no disease-modifying drug works on and they're in perpetual pain. Uh, and they, you know, they hate living just right. because of it. So there's millions of these cases. And yet, on an annual basis, I mean, the numbers are ridiculous, uh, less than something like 3% of all of these no-option patients ever even seek out a clinical trial or an expanded use or compassion care program. At the same time, you, you know, you'll hear things from, say, the FDA where they're, they're getting so good at approving compassionate use applications but when you look at the total number, I think the total number of all of them last year was something like 1,500. Meanwhile, you have millions yeah. uh, that, that are out there. So there's a major imbalance. I don't know what we can do to speed things up. I mean, the, the government just shot down right, to try legislation last week. Uh, so things aren't looking extremely good in the United States. I think we need to look more at what's going on in Asia, where you have programs like, um, you know, early access to regenerative medicines in Japan. Really? Okay. Uh, you have Dynamic, uh, like in China, where uh, Merck, uh, the largest drug company in the world, and the government of China just created a, a free zone on an, a tropical island where basically if you're dying of cancer, uh, you can travel and try Merck's cancer drugs that are unapproved for certain uh, types of cancer. So there's a lot of things going on around the world beyond the U.S. shores that we have to keep an eye on. Uh, simultaneously, we have to keep in mind that this isn't uh, 50 years ago. When you see dynamics now, like you know Harvard Medical School operating uh, in Dubai or uh, Cornell Medical School in Qatar, or Newcastle University uh, from the UK operating in Malaysia, you're beginning to see this globalization of medical training. Right. Uh, and so uh, we cannot ignore the fact that there aren't great sort of First World Institute educated folks all over the place conducting clinical research, and we have to think uh, beyond our borders right now because uh, we're a U.S. company, we love the U.S., we have a U.S. program, but at the same time, you can't ignore there's 200 plus other countries out there right. that may be doing things a little more creatively than our government is here. So uh, we have to have our feet in both uh, areas. Yeah, wow. I know my sister, for instance. Um, you know, she's waiting to get into a trial, and, and you know, she's she says, oh, my life is on hold, I'm in limbo, because, you know, they stopped her treatments to get her into the trial. So, um, you know, the tumors have to grow to just the right size for her to get into the trial. But she's like, uh, you know, and every time it's so disappointing because she goes, you know, to get uh for all the tests, and they say, no, not not yet, you know, okay, come back in three months, come back in six months, that type of thing. So um, it's kind of crazy, you know. 
it's a bit of a mixed up situation. Um, and, you know, people want to say, and it's true. I mean, drug companies don't want you dying in, in the studies. Um, <laughs> it messes up their data. Uh, but it's, uh, it's a shame. And, yeah, we, we, we can't, uh, we need alternative models. And, and, hey, if the alternative models are in Japan and China and Turkey and Thailand and wherever, we have to educate ourselves about this stuff. And we really, I just want to point everybody, uh, I mean, it's not just for our company, everybody has to become very well versed on the, uh, the clinicaltrials.gov uh, database that's run by the uh, U.S. National Institutes of Health because, um, you know, you might find, put your disease in, you might find out there's a clinical trial going on somewhere near you and not even know about it. But really, everyone needs to become aware of what's happening because at every day, there's thousands of clinical trials going on that uh, hospitals and clinics and so forth need patients for. Um, and you have to seek them out. You really have to be very proactive. You, we, as, we as consumers have to be proactive, I guess, you, yeah. is what you're saying. Yeah, uh, because Absolutely. I think people just rely on what their doctors say, you know, their doctor pointing out, I guess, a clinical trial or, you know, uh, trying to get them in and we do have to be more, you know, I tell everyone in every show, question everything, you know, we do have to be more proactive then. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So what, what do you see for our future? (laughs) Well, I'm, I'm very, um, I'm very positive in terms of, of the outlook in terms of, uh, bio and life sciences. I don't believe anything was off the table. Um, whether we are talking about the, you know, the 100,000 people that we lose every day on this planet to sort of aging and age-related diseases, or the 50,000 that we lose every day from acute trauma, it is very well within the intellectual capacity of where we are today to solve these problems of disease degeneration and ultimately death. Um, we, but we really have to keep thinking outside the box because if we, we do not want to fall into the traps that the sort of the traditional model right. of the farm industry, its regulators, and sort of the century-old model of, of what a drug is and looks like, uh, that's a brick wall. And we've done that for the last century. It's worked to an extent, but we need to go much further. Um, there is a reason, I point out, that microbes and plants and invertebrates and amphibians and so forth have survived here for a billion years. <laughs> they've survived ice right. ages. They've survived mass extinctions. They're still here. Uh, and so we really need to go back to nature and learn from nature once again. Uh, and I think we'll, we'll solve a lot of problems. Well, thank you. Thank you so much, Ira. I'm, I'm sure, I think you're going to be getting a lot of emails. Uh, it was very interesting, very enlightening. And again, could you um, tell us your website and your contact information? Sure, it's just www.bioquark.com, BioQuark Incorporated, located in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And I will be asked to chief executive officer. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, you're, you're welcome. You're wonderful. I hope this episode gave you some insight into something that you may be dealing with. Remember, the very, very best conversations happen at parentsarehardtoraise.org. So I want you to go right now and leave a question or comment so myself, our team, and the entire Parents Are Hard to Raise worldwide community can support you. Remember, your story can help someone else. We're all starving for community and connection, so please join us. 
If you found something helpful in this episode, which I'm sure you did, please subscribe to our show on iTunes or iHeartRadio. And I'd be so grateful if you'd share this episode with your family and friends. Parents Are Hard to Raise is a CounterSync Media production. The music used in this broadcast was managed by Cosmo Music, New York, New York, under license of Broadcast Music Incorporated. Thank you so much for listening, and I look forward to reading your comments and can't wait till we meet up again on the next episode of Parents Are Hard to Raise. Till then, may you forget everything you don't want to remember and remember everything you don't want to forget. See you again next week.